Ranger, Innovation Project Manager. Thank you for joining the program today. We're here to talk a little bit about innovation in the world of energy as we see it, but kind of a pre-conversation we were having. Uh, you mentioned that you're actually from Canada, so you from the British Columbia area, and you're down in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, but uh, give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, so I grew up in Canada. I grew up in British Columbia, a small town north of Vancouver, about three hours. Um, first in my family to be in the oil field. I just sort of graduated high school and, and needed to go out to make some quick money. I wanted to become a helicopter pilot, so started on the rigs. I've worked all over Canada, worked all over all over the U.S., and actually wound up in Texas because I was working in um, Gabon, Africa, on a drilling rig and um, wanted to come back to North America and uh, Texas was where it was happening. So I landed a job here and the rest is history. Without getting too much detailed, I've, I've heard one of the biggest differences between the U.S. and Canada is, you know, the land and that sort of thing. Just it, how, how we approach the land in terms of whether it be agriculture, even oil and gas development. With your experiences, is there any difference with how maybe the country of Canada approaches land in any sort of way versus United States? Yeah, I think in, in Canada, you're dealing a lot more with um, the crown, crown's land. And so it's all government owned. And with that comes. I was, I was going to say, and, th and that's what I've heard too, is the, is the term the crown's land. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all owned by the government. And so regulations are seem, seem to be a lot stricter. Um, that, that sort of thing. So down down here or in the U.S., you know, I've seen a lot of, obviously you can own your own land down here and, and owners own mineral rights. And so you're dealing more with landowners and, and mineral right owners as opposed to the government. Okay. So what's going on in the world of innovation these days in, in your eyes? You know, uh, the innovated, innovative energy industry is going a lot of different directions from drones to you know, the things two miles below the Earth's surface to different spherical fraxan size. So uh, what what type of innovation are you kicking around these days? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, in my 20 years in, in the oil field, it's, there's been definitely a, par a paradigm shift in, in how we drill wells. I think that the, the world that I'm in is mostly in the drilling side of things. Um, and so you're having... Um, Downhole, downhole innovation has become become sort of the the phrase of today. Closing the communication loop between between the surface and downhole to, to better to give you a better understanding of what exactly is, is going on um, in the well, so we can react more effectively and and produce produce better better wells, uh, quicker wells, more efficient wells. Um, so it's it's been pretty interesting. What types of things are you seeing for closing that communication gap? Well, rigs, rigs are coming a lot more automated. Um, the, the hardware and the software that's coming on the rigs are, are, are starting to get less, less manual for, for the, the employees that are actually working on the rigs. The driller is becoming more of kind of an observer as opposed to run, running a brake handle and, and turning, turning gears and turning valves and that sort of thing. So um, he's more of an advisor. Um, so the the computer is is making more decisions today than I think it ever has, um, and and the downhole equipment is telling you a lot more about what's going on downhole. The the it's it's very interesting as far as how many more wells we're putting on today um, than we have you know in years past. Well, you mentioned the word paradigm shift, you know, and here we're talking you know in the media 
programs, etc. The internet was our paradigm shift. When the internet came around, we had to completely rewrite our business plans. We had to figure out a new way of doing business. We had to figure out a new way of interviewing, writing stories, just everything. Everything. The internet changed all of that. Hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, did that to the oil and gas companies. I've had a number of CEOs and like John Gibson from One Oak, for example, Harold Ham, Continental Resources. They've told me they've had to rewrite their business plans because of this modern day technology. You mentioned paradigm shift with how we drill. Talk to me a little bit about your definition and your observation when it comes to the paradigm shift. I've seen it from a business standpoint on how we conduct business and even do our day-to-day operations. But talk to me about what you mean by that. What I mean is, is data and, and, big, and big data. I think that I think that you know, with with the innovations and the technology that we've that we that we see today, the amount of data that we're getting and that we have to sift through and and try to understand has just become has become too large for even you know to, for us to find a starting point. And and yeah, the internet was a paradigm shift, uh, but now now we're looking at bandwidth. So we have all these 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 technology techn- technological advancements on the rigs. Um, but bandwidth has become an issue. Generally, we drill wells in remote locations and remote areas. And how do we get all the different the different sensors that we have on rigs to measure various things? The different sensors and the technologies we have downhole giving us information from downhole. How do we get that back to the office um, in a in a in an output that can that can show us exactly what's going on without just looking at spreadsheets full of data? And so that's that's sort of the challenge of today. Um, is is sifting through and deciphering deciphering data because we have so much of it we've never had we've never had much data before. Um, you basically you basically looked at squiggly lines on a, on a on a screen to tell you what was going on, and that's changing. So, what do you see? What's going to happen with the world of big data? I mean, we're seeing how it works in the world of consumerism, to where you things you buy, things you talk about, websites you go to. That's big data. Big data. That's putting together your own personalized shopping experience, your own personalized uh, website browsing experience. How and I, I, that's a basic example that I think the listeners will understand of a very elementary version of big data, where it's taking all these behaviors, all these different things of of layers of information, and putting putting it together and getting one output. How do you see that happening in big in, in oil in terms of all these different layers of topography to geology to different fracking solutions and everything else like that? I think that's oh, I think that's the challenge, and I, I don't have a, a complete answer for you. But I think that every if you look at the major operators of today, I think that's the biggest challenge they're facing is looking at every facet of their business and all the data that's pouring in from. From upstream, downstream, fracking, drilling, completions, and how do we and how do we look at the data on on sort of one source, one platform? Um, because right now, you know, a lot of companies are going through fusion, a fusion um, concept or a fusion project where they're they're trying to get all this data from all these different facets into one platform that everybody can look at through the company, as opposed to being segregated. You know, completions is segregated, drilling is segregated, you know, um, pressure pumping is segregated. All these different segments are segregated and looking at different platforms to try to cipher the data. 
and where the real challenge comes is, is how do we get how do we get it all on one and we're all sort of talking and speaking the same language and I, I, I don't know if there is a one solution out there right now to be honest well a lot of that's proprietary information I would imagine um, so they don't want to share some of that but some of it the public I would you know I, I get I get that part of it but it it's it's interesting. I mean, how a lot of that's going to be used, and it's like each everybody's writing their own language. Yeah, definitely, and and you know, just just innovation in in and of itself is 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 a struggle. I would say in the oil field right now, just because um, you know we have we have everybody's on a day rate, right? And so when you're on a day rate, and you have you have an operator that is drilling wells and gets all the, the, the performance and the money out of the wells and every vendor that you have is on a day rate and you tell them, bring me, bring me your shiny toys, bring me your innovation, um, spend, spend the capital, spend the money to bring us these innovations, but um, you're on a day rate. So the longer you're on a well, the more money you're going to make. But then we're telling you to go out and spend this capital um, to shorten the well duration and so I think that another big challenge that we're seeing right now is is how do we get away from day rate? The day rate model is broken. We have all these vendors that are on day rate. And how do we get away from that? And so that's that's some of the things that we're working on as well, because if you don't get away from that, um, innovation is going to remain to be stifled. Explain that date. By the way, Dale Ranger, innovation project manager with us, talking about some of the challenges happening in the world of innovation and the energy industry and you mentioned day rates explain how that stifles innovation a little more so if if you have a if you have a rig on location that's drilling wells for you um meaning meaning you lease the equipment to drill that the rig is on a day rate and generally the services that are that are a bolt on to the rig are on a day rate and so, by nature, the longer you're on, a, the longer those services are on a well, the more money they make. Does that part Does that part make sense? Yep. Yep. Okay. And then, and then, an operator, which which has which has leased and, and and renting this equipment on a day rate to drill the well for them, reaps all the benefit of the well and how much oil or gas the well produces. But when we go to these services and we go to these these vendors or these companies and say, you know, bring us your innovation, bring us, you know, bring us the shiny new toys, for lack of a better term, without getting into too much detail. Well, they have to go out and spend money to do that. They have to burn capital. There's a lot of money that goes into bringing the innovations to the drill site to drill to drill faster. But they're not reaping any benefits of that. The only person that reaps the benefits is the operator. Mm-hmm. Sure. They shorten our well durations. They don't reap any benefits. So why would they do it? And so that's that's definitely stifled innovation, I think, in the in the energy business. Have you seen any issue with uh, states, regulations, governments, those types of things stifling innovation or becoming roadblocks or actually becoming a hurdle between operators and in, in innovative small companies, that sort of thing? I have it to be honest, um, and that's to answer your question. No, okay, I, but I'm not that involved in that. And at, at my level, that's that's somebody that handles that much higher than me. They could probably speak to more intelligence than that. But uh, but no, I, I haven't seen anything. I, and I, well, from what I've heard, the the Trump administration is making things easier. But 
that's as about as far as my knowledge will take me. Sure, yeah, and you're talking federal level. I was talking more state, counties, that sort of thing, because when you get down yeah. to it, um, the reason I bring it up is because a lot of what's going on right now, especially in the natural gas world, is uh, these little science projects that they're trying to get their data confirmed and they're trying to get their economics in order, that sort of thing. So it's tough when you've, you're trying to convince, you know, these operators that here we're going to reduce flaring or we're going to, you know, make some gas right on site to reduce your diesel costs. And just a number, you know what I mean, a number of different these, these uh, value-added projects. Um, those are based on innovation, and those are exploding left and right. So kind of a very long-winded question to ask you, are, are you following any of these um, natural gas or these on-site innovative projects that are happening? I call them science projects. Are, are you following any of those, whether it's converting, you know, natural gas to, you know, liquid natural gas on-site or, um, you know, with something like that? And are you following any of this new technology and that side of innovation? Yeah, I think I, I have a very limited knowledge of it, but I think that a lot of that is very dependent on where you are in the country and what and what play you're in, you know, um, and how and how the gas essentially is is coming out of the ground for for it to make sense. I think that when you look at areas like Marcellus, where the glass the gas comes out very clean and doesn't need much refining, um, using using your well gas to support equipment on location or support the the flaring equipment. It makes much more sense, I think, when, when other areas um, where the gas doesn't come out as clean, it needs much more refining. It makes it that the numbers and the dollars um, are a little bit more challenging, as well as as well as road traffic. Um, you know, if you add trucks, more 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 trucks on the road, trucks coming into location um, than are currently already coming in, it's it's hard to justify um, doing that. So that's very limited knowledge, but that's kind of how how it's played out. What projects are you working on right now in the innovation world? Oh, there's we have um, uh, a, we have we have a lot of different projects we're working on. Um, basically, rig equipment, rig automation. Uh, how do we further automate the drilling process, and how do we how do we close that that communication loop I spoke about earlier? Um, one of the things that that technology brings that I think has been overlooked is is it feels like to the the field staff that's out that's out on these locations is that technology is coming to replace their jobs and i think that you know we've done a poor job of communicating that 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 really isn't the case um per jobs may be repurposed but i don't think that the technology will replace the jobs and i th i think that as technology as rigs become more technologically advanced um you have to look at changing the experience for the people on location. Um, I think that, you know, as, as rigs themselves haven't changed in 50 years, I think neither has the accommodations and the experience of the people in the field. And so as the, as the demographic of um, rig hands change to suit the technological advancements on the rigs, we need to change the overall experience on location. You know, if somebody if somebody coming out of university is going to pick an Apple, a Google, an Amazon as as just an example, or come to a rig site for for training, or or to progress their their their, their degree, 
we have to change, you know, the the feel and, and the experience on location. We can't stick them in a 1970s trailer that has an upgraded TV and an upgraded leather couch and, and call it good. So that's, that's stuff that we're looking into. Well, I think the important part of what you talked about, in my opinion, is something we've been mentioning on this show for years, which is the changing of the energy industry's jobs. And they're not going away. They're, they're being repurposed is a very good way to put it because – they're, first of all, they're not slinging chains anymore. I think most people are agreeing with the fact that the energy workers are not your old slinging chains roughnecks. Right. Now, we've got a lot more engineers, and there's a lot more technology involved. And I see the way of the two-year trades, whether it be the welders, the electricians, the pipe fitters, the artificial intelligence, and the sensories. Those are the trades that you're starting to see more and more in the Bakken, for example, you know, they're hiring like 30, 40,000 people. Well, they've been hiring those people for a year or two years now. And the reason that they've been hiring that is because these are specialized jobs. So these are new jobs to the marketplace. And either an old dog has got to go back and learn new tricks or, yeah, he'll go the way of the news of the television repairman. And that's just the way it is. That technology has changed so many jobs that some people do have to get recertified or get reeducated in certain areas because technology has made some of these jobs a lot more specific. Man, I, I was surprised at just universities now. The majors are getting even more specific. So we're living in a pretty specialized world. But just your comments on the change of those jobs, those repurposing to where, how, how do you see those jobs being repurposed, I guess? Well, I think it just goes back to reiterate what you just said. The the dynamics the dynamics are changing, and I think that you know they as 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 an energy industry we're struggling to retain people as it is um, because of the downturn and people go away and don't come back. And I think that you know we have we have sort of um, upgraded how we how we bring people to companies. The onboarding process has gotten a lot better for you know for safety purposes. But I think where we can where we can change is is training programs for um, repurposing these folks to tell them, hey, you know, don't worry, you're going to have a job, but here's courses you're going to have to take um, because this is what we have in mind for based on based on your work history and your skill set. And I, I don't I don't think those those sorts of communications are are happening. And I think people are just sort of out working and wondering sort of what tomorrow is going to bring. And so I think we need to start having those conversations with folks um, and and letting them know that, hey, you have a job here, but these are some of the things I have to freshen up on, or these are some certificates or diplomas that you're going to have to get. Uh, here they are. They're scheduled for you. You know, do them on your days off, that sort of thing, so we can get you into into the next group of, of skill set. I like and the I'll, I'll go ahead. I also think that just, again, changing the experience level on location, you know, like I said, we, we're still sticking people in an upgraded 1970 mobile home on the side of location. And I think we have to change that. You know, I think that when you, when you sit in conferences, these IADC conferences, and they, they talk about sort of office settings, the only thing you ever hear is office setting. How do we change our offices for the new generation? And I, I have yet to see um, somebody change the location experience for our field guys. And I think that we can we can connect um, C-suite to field level 
by by upgrading communications in these trailers. I think we can we can get people out of sharing bunk beds and and having you know two three guys to a room. I think we can sort of you know we can cut costs in other places and change how these trailers are set up to more of a personalized experience. Um, we could maybe have a 30-inch screen in each room, just as an example, and have somebody have their own private room so they can talk to their families when they're away. If the, if the CEO sees that the, the crew at night did a good job um, operating the rig or tripping out of the hole, he could send a message to their to their, their shacks when they, when they lay down to bed at night. They got a message from the CEO saying, hey, great job tonight. And I think that I think that's something that we've missed. We've kind of lost the lost the importance of people because we're so hyper focused on on technology and what technology is going to bring. I've never heard the upgrade in the on site guys' living quarters before. That's um, you think that's something that a movement that would have happened by now? Do you, is there any reason that hasn't happened? Is it too hard for? Um, to get you know mobile homes out there, or, you know, is it hard to get a decent living? quarters out there because i know what you mean i've been out there before this it's not the ritz not by any means <laughs> <laughs> no it definitely isn't and i think for you know for retention um you know retention is a big problem right now i think for retention um if just by there's a lot of fat that you can cut off these trailers that really isn't being used it's kind of like your home right um you can look at studies that have been done how many people how much time do you spend in your formal dining room in, in a year's time, maybe two meals a year, and the rest of it, it just sits there not being used. And so I think there's a lot of those type scenarios in, in the shacks where you can cut some fat to cut some costs in certain areas and put that money towards um, other areas that would that would improve the experience for the people out there. And I think it's, it's a cost thing, of course. It's going to cost money. I get that. But I think there's definitely, you know, it's just a matter of partnering up with a forward-thinking sort of trailer company come up with solutions and i just think it's it's something that we've missed because we've been hyper focused on on technology and going to more sort of remote centers and stuff but we the fact of the matter is we still have people out there working well i find it interesting because it is definitely an upgraded cost and energy companies they're not they're not opposed to doing things like this a lot of times if it means a happier employee because they understand these guys do put a lot of work in and sacrifices are made and you know there's a reason guys show up with big t-bones and they do grills and you know they 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 spend quite a quite a bit of money making sure these guys have got a per diem etc so uh, right. on linkedin for example a social media site that i'm on uh, i i get these uh innovative videos that appear on my my home feed and one of them is these trailers that just kind of pop out and you know they show up as like a uh, it looks like a, a trailer on the back of a, I should, should say a container on the back of a train, but they all of a sudden pop out into like a two story, two story, nice little house. Have you seen these? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen them. And I, yeah, exactly. And is, I, is, is that what you're talking about? Something along those lines to where it, it's a totally new concept that most people aren't even thinking of. But at the same time, like I said, you can have one of these shipping containers, I don't know what they cost, but shipped out there, and all of a sudden you got a two-story, you know, four-bedroom house. Right. I think, yeah, that's definitely, definitely something to look at. The, the age of the, I don't know what they're called, the mini homes or the the smaller homes or whatever they're called. Tiny they're homes. Called. Tiny houses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah tiny houses. Um, yeah, but those guys, those guys wouldn't do well in a tiny house. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> I, the, the type of, the type of, um, 
I don't know why you'll call it technology. I wouldn't really call it technology that goes into those tiny homes and just the the thinking of how to maximize a space. I think could be used in a in a different you know sort of area, um, and and you could you could take how those guys maximize the space, and and put sort of those improvements into some sort of trailer or C can or however you wanna wanna do it. That's interesting. Yeah, like I said, I. Wanted to pl- um, flush that one out a little bit. It's the first time I've heard that about upgrading living quarters of the on-site. Something I think most people would get behind. It's surely an economics issue at that point. Um, let me ask you about another conversation that's going through the industry. Uh, Dale Rangers with us, innovative project manager. And um, it's the retirement that's happening uh, over the next five years. It was 10 years, but now it's probably five years that something like over 50% of the industry, 70% of the industry is going to be retiring. And so there's kind of this vetting process that's going on where with the new people that are coming into the industry, the people who are retiring, they want to make sure that the new leaders and the new spokesmen and et cetera have, have an understanding for the industry, how it was built and the respect that goes along with it. Um, are you hearing anything along those lines as far as the, the legacy planning, the retirement that's happening, the vetting, just kind of that whole changing of the guard that seems to be going on in the en- energy industry? Or is, are you not involved in those um, day-to-day type of uh, scenarios? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not involved in it, but I see it. I, I, I definitely see a, a changing of the guard, even in the field. Um, I know there's a lot of discontent with, sort of training your replacement um and 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 that those sort of things that come along with that especially in the field i'm more connected to the field than i am sort of upper level management mm-hmm. so there's there's some um, not, not discontent but there is there is a, a definitely an understanding of sort of the the guys that come up um with without a college education and those sorts of things are kind of they're they're feeling like um, they're training their replacements to the people who have degrees, and and I understand where they're coming from, but but the world is changing, and but I think there's a happy balance. Um, I don't have a degree, um, and I work in a, in a in an office that are that are full of people with degree with degrees, and we we can find find areas that we work really you know really well on. Um, but I think technology is going to close a lot of those gaps. I think that. Um, a reason for there's sort of you have the the main categories of why companies are chasing technologies and then you have these subcategories of why they're chasing technology and what i mean by technology i mean is sort of the autonomy and the the automation of of things and i think that the software in these in this equipment is being looked at to sort of um, close the gap of the the oh, i don't know what you want to call it the crew, the big crew change, they're calling it, right? So that's kind of what, what they're looking to. From what I've heard is is the technology of the autonomy and the, the automation um, is, is hopefully going to help close some of that gap, the, the learning transfer. Yeah, I see that. Um, I, I, I know that, um, oh, growing pains or butting of heads or just, like I said earlier, some old dogs, they don't want to learn new tricks. And, you know, there's that technology integration growing pain that's happening. Uh, the other Part of that I wanted to ask you is more from the social cause side of things to where 
It almost seems like in today's world you can't even tie your shoe without somebody accusing you of being a Democrat or Republican or having a social agenda. Um, the but millennials, for example, a lot of them uh, were instructed to have a social cause as they entered the workplace. So, you know, environmentalism, for example, is a big social cause. When you layer in that extremism that we have in the world today, and then you layer in that kind of the the new embracement of a social cause into the professional world, uh, there's some uncertainty there too as well in the oil and gas sector of things. Are, are you hearing, feeling any of that side of things with the, either the world of extremism or the uh, social cause of that kind of the changing of the guard? Um, short answer is no. I don't, I haven't, I haven't sort of been, been um, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see it from, from my level uh, and sort of in the field level. I think they're you're the party that you're associated with, or, or whether you're extreme, extreme one way or the other, it really sort of shakes out at, at the field level. Um, it's just a, it's just about whether you can do the work or not, and so that's that's really kind of my my experience with that. Well, I'll give you a couple examples just to give you an idea that it goes beyond like politics and et cetera. Um, a couple of years ago, when I was in Colorado doing some business. Uh, I was staying at a hotel or whatever, having some conversation with folks that I met that morning, just in the breakfast bar area. And right. she she worked for a natural gas company, and she paused, looked over her shoulders before she said that she works in the natural gas world, um, because it was in Colorado. It's it's like that at times where well they tried to get fracking banned, for example. So um, right. yeah, in some circles it it gets pretty extreme. And it gets pretty political and it gets pretty social caused, you know. And it's, like I said, you can't even tie your shoe in some cases without somebody making an accusation. And you're like, no, I just tie my shoes since since, since I was a kid. I've been doing it. But, uh, okay, well, it's good to see you. And, and you're down there in Dallas, so. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely, you know, there's a town not too far from here called, called Denton, Texas. And I've definitely seen um, with, with, some, with some operators um, some, some, you know, protesting at their, at their sites because it was a, the town was very against fracking and there was some, uh, some rumors going around about how fracking was causing earthquakes, which, you know, I don't know. I, I want to say that there was some studies put out that says that's not the case, um, but I'm no expert in that field and by no means pretend to be. And then, and then I was also in Denver, um, back about eight or nine years ago. And all the, the, the living arrangements that were set up as far as these man camps that were being set up all over the place, um, they were trying, they didn't like them. They thought they you know, were a problem in the area. Sure. And so there was a big push to get rid of the man camps. And that's really been my extent of experience as far as that stuff goes. And to me, that's, that's the normal protesting type things, you know. I mean, because, yeah. well, a lot, those, those crew camps, man camps, um, they have a lot of benefit to communities. You know, they're temporary for a reason. And up in North Dakota, we saw firsthand the benefits of them. There's a reason that they were they were there. And um, you build too fast, and all of a sudden, you have a bunch of leftover single bed, single family housing, and they go vacant, and the market kind of goes under. And so I, I've seen them. I've seen them work pretty 
closely and that sort of thing. So anyway, I just um, more, more of the social cause thing. So I'm glad to hear that you're not seeing it down there. I've seen it other, other parts of the country and, and this and that. And so it's it's always refreshing when I find somebody that doesn't run into it because I'd say nine out of ten do. So yeah, uh, it's it's refreshing. So okay, uh, just kind of uh, summing up here a little bit. We got Dale Ranger, Innovation Project Manager, talking a little innovation and some just conversations that are happening in the energy industry. Uh, anything that we missed, anything you want to reiterate, uh, I'd like to give guests the final word, so the floor is yours. Yeah, no, like I said, I think I've pretty much pretty much covered it. I think uh, the energy industry is, is headed in the right path. I think in, as far as from my experience and the level that I sit at, I've, I went over some sort of holes that I think we've missed, but there's a lot of good work going on um to sort of automate drilling uh get to autonomy and and do it safely and and environmentally stewardly as we can so that's really it i appreciate you having me on thank you very much